Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Um, My guest today is an assistant professor at Cornell and head of the lab there, uh, Connor Liston. Connor, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. So um, first question, let's let's get right into the work that you do in the lab. What is it? What are you working on and what's the significance of it? Yeah, so I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and the research we do in my lab operates at the interface between the, these, these two fields. Um, and we're trying to understand um, um, at a basic kind of circuit level um, how, uh, how different brain circuits um, uh, contribute to uh, learning and memory and uh, like motivated approach and avoidance behaviors. And then we're trying to um, understand how those, how those mechanisms get uh, disrupted um, by genetic factors and, uh, and stress um, to two factors that we know to be important in the pathogenesis of um, various psychiatric illnesses. Um, and then in the, in the longer term, we hope that what we, what we learn uh, in the lab can be used to to uh, develop new technologies for uh, diagnosing um, mental illness and for targeting treatments to the individual patients we think are most likely to benefit from them. Do you you focus more on uh, psychiatric illness or on learning and how to optimize learning? Uh, we, we focus on our interest in learning and memory, um, relates kind of directly to, um, how they get disrupted in, in psychiatric illnesses, um, especially, uh, depression. Um, more recently we've been studying autism. Um, so, uh, we have kind of a translational focus. What are some surprising insights that you've learned from your research so far, you know, that, that people that are involved in this would be shocked at? Sure. Yeah, I think um, one thing that uh, has been really interesting um, are some of the early results of our efforts to use neuroimaging um, brain scans, basically, like uh, to to inform the way we think about diagnosis in psychiatry. Um, so depression. Uh, the way we diagnose depression today, um, almost everyone now, like the, the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we use um, in in mental health, has become kind of a colloquial term, right? Everyone, every, a lot of people are familiar with this, um, and it was designed to uh, to um, to generate these uh, like reproducible diagnose diagnoses, these diagnostic labels that um, psychiatrists and psychologists could all agree on so that when we see 
two different you know therapists, um, a doctor and a therapist see a patient, um, they can agree on what the what the right diagnostic label is. But the challenge there is that um, that effort um, at at identifying um, kind of um, reliable, reproducible diagnoses um, was never really designed to. Uh, to correspond to the underlying neurobiology. Um, so we lump patients with very different problems um, all together um, under a single diagnostic label. Um, and that means uh, that it's likely that um, different neurobiological mechanisms are, 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 are driving um, the, the problems um, in these patients. And so in a way, it's a miracle that the treatments that we have work as well as they do. Um, and we hope that we can use um, brain scans to uh, to kind of identify um, subgroups of patients with more homogeneous, um, similar uh, um, patterns of, of dysfunction, um, and then and then use those uh, those subtypes to target treatments to individual patients. That's really what we've been working hard on, particularly in the context of depression. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so let's take depression. How many different um, subtypes have you seen, and what are the uh, variations in the subtypes? Yeah. So, um, w- what we what we've discovered so far is that um, using brain scans, um, th- these are so these are MRI brain scans, similar to what you might get um, if uh, if you if you went to a hospital and um, needed a kind of a, a workup for a head injury. Um, and these MRI brain scans can be used um, to to measure how different brain regions are functionally connected to one another. Um, and using those measurements, we were able to identify at least four different subtypes of, of depression um, that predict uh, different clinical symptom profiles and different um, different likelihoods of responding to particular treatments. So, for example, uh, one of these subtypes is characterized by um, elevated levels of uh, of anxiety. Um, insomnia, and what, what psychiatrists called anhedonia, which is a term just meaning kind of like a loss, a last, excuse me, uh, a loss of interest in um, previously rewarding, enjoyable activities. Um, and another subtype um, also has prominent anhedonia, um, but they don't have any, um, or, or um, they have very little uh, anxiety or insomnia. Um, and um, we can use these brain scans to diagnose the subtypes and to predict who's going to go on to respond to particular treatments um, more accurately than we, we, than we can by uh, just looking at um, their clinical symptoms. Yeah, so what are some of the, um, what has this told you in terms of treatments, different types of treatments? What's working for certain subtypes versus not? Yeah, uh, that's something we're really interested in. So a big challenge in in psychiatry, uh, in general, is um, is predicting who's going to is selecting a treatment, right? Um, uh, in other areas of medicine, like say you have um, uh, a pneumonia, um, a doctor can uh, can culture uh, the the bacteria or the virus that's causing your pneumonia, um, and using that information, they can select a particular antibiotic that's most likely to be effective against. Uh, against that pneumonia. In psychiatry, unfortunately, um, we're left with more of a trial and error approach to treatment selection. We know that, um, for example, if you have uh, depression, there's a a number of drugs that are likely to be helpful for you, um, but we don't know which one is is 
most likely to be useful. Um, and what's especially frustrating is, uh, you know, for, for patients who are, who are depressed is that uh, it takes a long time for these drugs to take effect. So usually um, we need something like um, eight weeks maybe uh, of taking a drug to really know whether that drug is, is, is helpful for the, for the patient. Um, and, and then if it's not, we kind of need to start over from scratch, stop that drug, start a new drug, um, and try again. Um, so what we're trying to do is use these brain scans, uh, this approach to subtyping, to identify individual patients who are who are likely to respond to particular treatments. The one we've focused on is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, this is an FDA-approved um, uh, neurostimulatory um, antidepressant treatment. Um, it works by applying it's non-invasive. Um, a, a magnet basically is placed um, next to a particular uh, area of the head corresponding to a brain area that we think um, is important in depression and a rapidly fluctuating magnetic field is applied to that brain area um, and stimulates the nerve tissue um, uh, uh, through the through the scalp. Um, and with repeated treatments, um, the, the, the person's depressive symptoms often improve, and we know that already. But what we also know is that uh, this, this treatment, TMS, um, uh, doesn't work for everybody, um, and like standard antidepressants, um, it, it, it takes several weeks to have its full effects. Um, so it would be great if we could predict who's going to go on to respond to TMS and who won't um, before we give them the treatment. Um, even if you get a negative result, imagine you're a patient who's depressed and, 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 and this test tells you that TMS isn't going to work for you. That's disappointing. But personally, I would rather know that this test isn't, that this treatment's not going to work for me and um, not waste my time and money on, on, on getting this treatment um, and, and instead try something else that's more likely to be helpful. Um, so, uh, that's one thing we've been able to do. Yeah, this is good because, right, it would, you know, there's certain therapies, drugs, why take them if you don't have to, if they're not going to be effective and it would get you exactly. faster to the end result exactly. that would help you. And yeah, and it's funny. It seems like there's been a jump. Um, there's been this general diagnosis of conditions and then there's people talking about um, personal medicine with like, you know, looking at your unique genetic code and crafting a solution just for you. But it seems like the middle part, the subtyping has been ignored, but that's what you're working on. And it seems like it'll be very helpful and possibly easier to at least silo people into different types of conditions or sub subconditions um, and help them this way. So it's very interesting what you're saying. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, there, you know, in cancer biology, for example, um, precision medicine, what you're, what you're describing, like a, a, an approach to looking at um, the particular genetic factors that are, that are driving the formation of a cancer in an individual patient um, has, has been really, um, it holds great potential. Um, and in some cases, it's been really transformative um, and life-saving for, for certain patients. In psychiatry, um, we're, we're, we're a ways behind <laughs> um, uh, oncology, unfortunately. Um, but we think that, um, you know, we and many other investigators as well um, think that this and similar approaches to subgrouping people um, might be really helpful for advancing our understanding of the, the biology of mental illness and designing more personalized treatments. Are there, um, yeah, it's funny, like probably, I don't know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they just said you were mentally ill. And now you could be schizophrenic or depressed or anxious or those dividing and dividing into more categories. But um, 
what you, you so you talked about depression, different kinds. What other types of um, of ailments seem to have a lot of subtypes that surprised you, and maybe go into some of the subtypes? Yeah. So our work so far has focused really on depression, um, and but there are there are other groups who have been using um, similar approaches. Um, I can highlight a couple of examples. Um, so uh, a, a consortium, a, whole, a large group of investigators um, uh, led in part by um, Carol Taminga um, have been uh, trying to identify uh, subtypes of schizophrenia um, and um, using, using related approaches, basically looking at, looking at the different measures of the underlying biology. Um, one approach is brain scans. Um, another approach um, is cognitive testing. Um, so this is kind of getting at um, uh, getting around the, the, the issue of, um, of uh, it being challenging to, uh, to evaluate a patient um, based solely on what we in psychiatry call self-report measures. So this is basically just like asking a patient how they feel. Um, it's, it's subjective. And, um, you know, if, if you ask somebody like, uh, for example, um, how did you sleep last night? Sleep, we know, is really important for um, most kinds of mental illness. Um, your, your response to how did you sleep last night might be different than um, another person's response to uh, how did you sleep last night. It's, a, it's kind of an inherently subjective question, right? Um, wh- whether you feel like you slept well depends on how you normally sleep and what you think is the right amount of sleep for you. Um, uh, so these subjective measures um, are, are hard to use um, in, in a lot of ways. And um, more objective measures, um, like to take the sleep example, like if you could, if you could um, measure, uh, you know, um, you can you can use um, uh, like uh, electrical recordings um, through a person's scalp to actually quantitatively um, characterize the architecture um, of of sleep in their brains. Um, that might be um, that these kind of objective measures might be more useful. So Carol Taminga and her colleagues have been doing this um, for uh, for uh, schizophrenia and psychosis in general, um, and and they've identified um, uh, uh, kind of complex um, subtypes of psychosis um, based on uh, based on objective cognitive tests um, as well as other biological measures. Um, and uh, they seem to have a stronger correspondence to biology than the conventional diagnostic labels. Um, it's early days there still for just like it is for depression. Um, uh, there's a lot we don't know about, you know, whether that approach to subtyping people um, predicts different kinds of treatment response and um, how it might be useful clinically. But at the very least, we think it's going to be helpful for um, for, for advancing our understanding of the biology. Um, so that's one area. Um, another, I think, exciting area. Um, so um, Helen Mayberg um, is is a is a um, neuroscientist uh, at Emory, and she's been uh, she's been kind of pivotal in um, driving the field um, of using uh, deep brain stimulation to treat depression. This is this is basically for people who are who have very treatment um, resistant depression and who are very very sick. Um, and no existing treatments work for them, um, they can actually get a neurosurgical treatment that involves implanting an electrode into the brain and stimulating a particular brain region, and, and it's been very effective for some people. Um, so uh, 
she's been um, one of the investigators um, driving that forward. And she's also been looking at um, uh, a question related to the one we did, which is whether you can use brain scans to predict differential treatment response. So so we were looking at whether someone's going to respond to a treatment or not respond. Um, Helen and her colleagues have been looking at whether a person's more likely to respond to treatment A versus treatment B, which is obviously a really important question in the clinic. Um, the, the particular treatment she was looking at um, was um, an antidepressant, a, 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 you know, a, a, a medication um, versus uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy, um, a, a psychotherapy uh, treatment for depression. And she found that um, that activity in uh, certain um, brain regions um, was predictive of responding to one treatment but not the other treatments, which which is which is really exciting because, um, like I was saying before, um, it's uh, it's useful but also disappointing to learn that um, a particular treatment isn't going to work for you. Um, and what would be really powerful in a clinical setting would be a test that could show that uh, that you know one treatment. Um, isn't going to work, but this other treatment will. That's super interesting because I could see, um, you know, drug companies <clears throat> using a model like that to come out with new drugs that would work better for certain subtypes that just have no ability to be helped or help the ones that are out there better or make them more narrowly targeted. And then, right, if, if I had depression, I could see myself coming to a, um, you know, a psychiatrist, a doctor in the near future, and they could say, all right, well, we'll scan you. And then based upon your particulars, this looks like the best treatment plan for you. It works the best. And that would be so much better than what we have now. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think you touched on another big challenge in um, in developing better treatments. And this is one that, um, that scientists at uh, pharmaceutical companies deal with every day. Um, there, are, there aren't really good biomarkers um, for, for mental illnesses. Um, so in other areas, um, you, you, there's, there's a particular, like um, take diabetes, for example, um, uh, blood glucose um, is, is, um, is a, a really good sign of whether someone's diabetes is well controlled and responding well to treatments or not. If their blood glucose is high, um, they're not responding well to treatments. Um, and uh, and and when they're doing a drug test um, to know whether a particular new drug candidate is going to be effective for diabetes or not, they can look at whether it is useful for reducing blood glucose. Um, in, in psychiatry, we don't have that. And so uh, with, without biomarkers, um, uh, scientists at pharmaceutical companies need to rely on, again, just like self-reports. Um, from patients, um, which are very variable, um, and they also show strong placebo responses. Um, so it can be it can be hard to know sometimes um, whether whether a treatment uh, is effective or not effective, or or perhaps it's effective just for a subgroup of people, and and it's just and it's just hard to evaluate that. Yeah, I have a, a strange question. Um, do you scan people as they're going through? treatments, does their brain change? Like, let's say someone gets the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Do you look at their brains before and after? And then let's say you have to try some other treatment, some other treatment. So do you see changes in people as they're treated? And then another question that kind of goes along with it is, as someone's depression continues for months or years, you know, uh, does their brain change? Does their other biomarkers change in response to that? 
Yes, yeah, um, that's that's a great question. One we're one we're also really interested in. Um, we ha- we have been looking at that. Uh, um, other investigators have been looking at that too. I can give you a couple of examples. Um, we know that, uh, like you, you brought up TMS, we know that um, when a person um, gets TMS, um, that these MRI measures of connectivity in the brain um, they do change, um, and in fact, um, the MRI measures of connectivity um, at baseline are predictive of the likelihood of someone um, of someone responding well um, and and showing those brain changes. So, in other words, um, the the configuration of connections in your brain um, when you're depressed. Um, has some bearing on um, how TMS affects the brain. Um, but we do know that, yes, that TMS, um, when, when people get TMS for depression, it, it does change the patterns of connectivity that we're able to measure using these brain scans. Another study by my colleague um, here at Cornell, Mark Dubin, showed that um, a particular area of the brain, uh, the anterior cingulate, it's called, it's um, kind of uh, a- along the in the middle of the brain, um, on the midline of, of someone's head, um, and this area mm-hmm. actually thickens. Um, it grows larger um, uh, when 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 someone um, undergoes uh, TMS um, and and their depression improves. Um, that that finding, I think, we you know, it's it's uh, it's really interesting and um, quite surprising at some level, um, and needs to be uh, uh, replicated in other like larger studies. But it really suggests that the the brain is um, quite plastic, um, and uh, and does change in response to TMS, um, and it it raises interesting questions. That you're kind of the second part of your question was about um, whether um, whether the course of depression um, is is associated with changes in brain structure, or brain or brain function, um, and whether those could be used as as biomarkers. Um, there is some evidence that it does. Um, uh, PTSD is a good example. Um, there's some evidence that a region of the brain, the hippocampus, um, is smaller in in patients with PTSD, which is consistent with what we know from basic science studies showing that stress can lead to atrophy of the of the hippocampus. Um, but what was really interesting about this finding, um, this is about this is maybe 15 years ago now, um, a, a group um, looked at uh, looked at um, uh, twins. Um, um, who uh, who one of whom went on to develop PTSD and uh, and another twin um, didn't um, and what they found was that the hippocampus was shrunken in um, both twins um, which which was a bit surprising and suggested that um, that a that a shrunken kind of atrophied hippocampus may actually be a risk factor. Um, for for developing PTSD mm. rather than a consequence of the PTSD itself. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Very good. Uh, you know, a lot of fascinating insights, um, which is about out of time. So I, I just wanted to wrap and, and uh, ask you, you know, I guess last question, what do you see as the, um, you know, what's the roadmap for your work? What do you think you may be able to accomplish in five years or 10 years? Any specifics? Yeah. Um, well, uh, a couple things. One thing we're really excited about in the near term is using this approach to subtyping um, to try to understand the biology of depression better uh, to identify um, 
particular brain circuit mechanisms that might that might be contributing to depressive symptoms in one group of patients but not another and if we knew what those mm-hmm. mechanisms were then we could we could um target uh treatments like TMS to to like specifically rescue um those those disease processes um in individual patients and so so we're trying different approaches to that um basically um uh, advancing our understanding of the the, the mechanisms um, that give rise to depression and and targeting treatments to patients based on that understanding. The second thing I think um, in the longer term, we hope that um, by by understanding depression at a circuit level, we might be able to develop um, kind of um, fundamentally new kinds of treatments. Um, and that's been a real challenge in psychiatry for a long time. Many of most of the drugs um, that we use in depression. Um, are um, really quite similar to the drugs that we've been using in depression for decades. Um, it's been a while now um, since we've had really like a fundamentally new kind of, of, of antidepressant drug. Um, uh, there are a few examples that are under investigation and are and are pretty exciting. Um, but uh, but it's been a while. Um, we're overdue, and we hope that we can contribute to that. Well, very good. Well, Connor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and it's been uh, very interesting. And your work is. Uh is poised to have tremendous impact. Thank you for what you do. Great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.